welcome to Primary Cast, your unofficial study group for the ASIM primary exam. My name is Charlotte Durand and I'm your host and each episode I'm joined by a special guest to cover some of the core content from the ASIM primary exam. I just want to take a quick second to say thank you to everyone who has donated, contributed and sent little messages of thanks. Uh, It's been really lovely to read through all of your notes and experiences and who's out there listening. So thank you very much to everyone. As you know, all of the study notes will be available online at ASIM Primary Podcast. And you can always send questions, comments and feedback via the website directly, uh, through Twitter or social media and via the Buy Me A Coffee app where you can also donate a small amount to keep the podcast. Okay, so today we're talking about the pathology of healing immunity and let's get My guest today to talk about pathology of healing, immunity, and neoplasia is Vita Bake, who is an ED reg working in Darwin. She is also very bloody impressive because she's not only sat and passed her primary exams, but she did so the MCQ whilst pregnant and then had a very small human being around the house for... Thank you so much, Vita, for coming today. You're welcome. Thanks. Can I just, like, how on earth... Did you, how on earth do you sit those exams with all of that going, all of that life stuff going on? Uh, With a lot of help. Everybody and anybody who could help helped me out. Um, It was a tough time. Yeah, it's just incredible. Like I, I know that just from my point of view, I found it hard enough to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, do you have any sort of words of wisdom or advice for anyone who might be sitting the exam with young kids? Yep. I think there's a lot of brain fog and sleep deprivation. So anything that can optimize that, you need extra time, extra vision, because your brain just doesn't work the same way as it mm-hmm. did before. And anybody who even mildly offered to help, I would take them up on it and <laughs> get them to babysit and, and study while I could. And then I listened to your podcast when I was putting my baby to sleep and so yeah, optimizing whatever I can. I think um, I'll mention there's a lot of guilt, um, mom guilt, and I overcame that by just spending some quality time every day with my daughter um and I think that's you just you have to do that for yourself for your mental well-being yeah and like so many people have got in touch about using things like the podcast for when they're have their little human beings in tow and I think maybe we'll have to get you back on to talk a bit more in depth about that because I think there'd be a lot of people who are really interested in in how you navigated that and you're certainly not on your own but mm. it might probably feels like it at times <laughs> yeah happy to talk about that yeah great um all right so what we might do mm-hmm. is talk first about angiogenesis can you tell me what is angiogenesis and when does it occur is branching and extension of existing vessels it's the recruitment of endothelial progenitor cells and it occurs during wound healing, chronic inflammation, and in physiological processes such as endometrial proliferation and in tumor formation or growth. What are the sequences of events involved in wound healing, Charlotte? 
So wound healing begins with formation of a blood clot. Mm -hmm. Then there is granulation tissue formation, which is occurs via components of angiogenesis, migration, proliferation of fibroblasts. Mm -hmm. There is cell proliferation and collagen deposition, uh, which is the extracellular matrix formation. And then we have scar formation, where there's initially blanching, and then type 3 collagen is laid down. Uh, that's later replaced by type 1 collagen. Following that, there is wound contraction via myofibroblasts, and then connective tissue remodeling. Uh, and then after that is your recovery period where you get the tensile strength back. So what is wound contraction? Wound contraction is a process that usually occurs in large surface wounds and it helps to close the wound by decreasing the gap between its dermal edges. This reduces the wound surface area and is an important feature of healing by secondary intention. It's mediated by a network of myofibroblasts that form at the edge of the wound. Okay. And how do skin wounds recover tensile strength? This is through an increase in collagen synthesis, primarily type 1 collagen, and then there's a reduction in collagen degradation for the first two months, and then structural modification of collagen with cross-linking and increased fibre size helps that uh, recovery of tensile strength. And what is the approximate time frame for the recovery of tensile strength in skin wounds? So skin wounds have tensile strength of 10% at about one week, which is usually the period of time when we remove. This improves for the first three weeks and then plateaus at around three months where tensile strength is about 70 to 80% of the original. It may never recover to 100%, but it gets pretty The next question is about scar formation and fibrosis. What other phases involved in scar formation? Okay, so I definitely think of it in a picture form. Initially, there's inflammation with fibroblast migration and proliferation. And then there's angiogenesis with extracellular matrix deposition. Um, and then tissue remodeling and wound contraction occurs. Great, thank you. And yeah, that's a really good point having that I'm quite a visual person mm. as well. So like having the picture in your head is really helpful. Yep. This is pretty dry stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know. I really got you on for a very dry one, didn't I? Oh, I mean, I feel like they're all a little bit dry, but this one is particularly bad. Um, hang in there, everyone who's listening. <laughs> um, Vita, what factors influence scar formation? Okay. So, um, again, just kind of thinking about it logically, the tissue environment and the extent of the tissue that was damaged the intensity and duration of the stimulus, the conditions that inhibit repair, for example, if there's an infection or a foreign body, um, so things you would do in ED as well, um, systemic disease states, so diabetes or steroid use, nutritional status, and genetic predisposition to scar formation such as keloid. So, Charlotte, can you describe the pathogenesis of fibrosis? So, fibrosis involves the excess deposition of collagen and extracellular matrix in chronic disease. Usually, it's a combination of healing and chronic inflammation, and it's characterized by a persistent stimulus such as infection, trauma, or autoimmune pathology, 
and macrophages are the key cells involved in this process and it's governed by growth factors which stimulate the proliferation and activity of fibroblasts. And can you please give examples of fibrosis? So these can include cirrhosis, chronic pancreatitis, pulmonary fibrosis, constrictive pericarditis and glomerulonephritis. So the next question is about immunity and immunoglobulins. What are the types of immunoglobulins and their clinical significance? Alright, so you've got five different types. IgA, IgD, which is an antigen uh, recognition by B cells, IgE, which is important in anaphylaxis, IgG, which is um, involved with complement activation, infection fighting and immunity T to past infections, and then IgM, which is again complement activation, and it's also the first one that's produced in infection. Great, thank you. Um, the next question is a drawing question, but if we can describe it as best you can, and I will put a little diagram in the notes. Mm-hmm. Um, can you please draw and label a typical immunoglobulin? Okay, so it's a Y shape, um, and the the base of the Y has two parallel lines, which is the effector protein. The angled top parts of the Y have two lines representing the heavy and the light chain, and the antigen binding protein portion is that top part. Um, The tips of the antigen binding protein are known as the variable region because they differ on different antibodies. Great, thank you. And can you please tell me what the features are of innate and acquired immunity? Yes, so innate um, immunity is an early response and it's mediated by toll-like receptors. It binds common microbe sequences and the defense mechanisms are not specific. So for example, interferons or phagocytosis. And then you have your acquired immunity, which is mediated by T-cell mediators, so antigen-presenting cells, AMHC markers, and antigen presentation. T-cells release the cytokines and are responsible for the orchestration of the immune response. And then um, you also have B-cells, which differentiate into plasma cells. And then you have memory cell formation, so a secondary exposure can lead to a magnified response the next time. Can you please outline the immunological mechanisms leading to anaphylaxis? So it begins with exposure to an antigen. Then there is presentation of that antigen to T helper cells by dendritic cells. T helper cells then differentiate into Th2 cells and these release cytokines that act on B cells to produce IgE. IgE then binds to mast cells. Repeat exposure to an antigen causes cross-linking of those IgEs bound to mast cells, leading to degranulation and release of vasoactive amines, lipid mediators and cytokines. The action of these mediators on end organs results in clinical manifestations of anaphylaxis, such as vasodilation, vascular leakage and smooth muscle spasm. Great. And Charlotte, can you describe what the clinical manifestations of anaphylaxis are? Yep, so in terms of systems, Mm -hmm. uh, on the skin, you have rash and swelling. Respiratory, there can be wheeze, breathlessness and stridal. 
GIT it presents as diarrhea and vomiting, and then cardiovascular effects, which is seen as tachycardia, hypertension, shock, and cardiovascular collapse. So the next question is about type 2 hypersensitivity. What is type 2 hypersensitivity? So hypersensitivity type 2 is caused by antibodies that react with antigen that are present on cell surfaces or in the extracellular matrix. Antigens can be intrinsic to the tissue or extrinsic, such as a drug metabolite. And can you describe the mechanisms involved and give some examples of each mechanism? Yeah, so this is how I like to answer in Nadia's way. So um, there are three mechanisms. There's opsonization and phagocytosis. There's complement and FC receptor-mediated inflammation and antibody-mediated cellular dysfunction. So a little bit more detail about each one then. Uh, So with opsonization, uh, the IgG antibodies opsonize cells and uh, there's complement activation which generates C3B and C4B which are recognized by phagocyte receptors resulting in phagocytosis and destruction of opsonized cells. Examples of this include transfusion reactions, autoimmune hemolytic anemia, then going into um, complement-related inflammation. The antibodies bind to fixed tissue such as basement membranes or extracellular matrix, which activates the complement. The generation of C5A and C3A cause increased vascular permeability and activate inflammatory cells causing local tissue destruction. Examples of this are glomerulonephritis, vasculitis, and good pasture syndrome. And then you have uh, antibody-mediated cellular dysfunction. Antibodies directed against cell surface receptors impair or dysregulate function without causing cell injury or inflammation. Examples of this are myasthenia gravis, Graves' disease, and pernicious anemia. Great, thank you. I really liked your reference to Nadi's approach, which um, if you haven't heard the episode, uh, it's back in episode 10. It's called Insights from an ASIM Examiner, and it's with Dr. Nadi Pandithage, who uh, helped to teach both mm. of us uh, exam technique. And it's that that sort of have your sort of your big big things first so the three things that they want just list them straight up and then give more detail about each and that way you use your time more effectively Charlie, can you please explain the pathogenesis of type 3 hypersensitivity so antibodies bind antigen to form complexes which are then deposited in tissues where they cause inflammation and tissue damage, either directly or through activation of complement. There are three phases involved in type 3 hypersensitivity, which is phase 1, formation of antigen-antibody complexes within the circulation. Uh, Phase 2 is deposition of those immune complexes in various tissues. And then phase three is the inflammatory reaction at the site of the deposition causing tissue injury. And this can take around 10 days to evolve. Great, and so what are some diseases that are caused by type three hypersensitivity? Uh, These can be serum sickness, SLE, post-strep glomerulonephritis, and reactive arthritis. Great, and what are some clinical features of type three hypersensitivity? 
These are fever, urticaria, arthralgia, lymph node enlargement, and proteinuria. Okay, so type 4 hypersensitivity. Mm-hmm. Vita, can you describe the sequence of events that lead to a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction? So there's an initial injury, and then the reaction is initiated by the antigen-sensitized CD4 or CD8 T-cells. The antigen may be transported via the lymphatics of the damaged tissue. And then the damage itself occurs via cytokines or via direct cell-mediated tissue injury. And what are some examples of type 4 hypersensitivity reactions? It's a lot. Uh, so the really big ones are type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, um, TB, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, Guillain-Barre. <laughs> I don't know if I'm saying that. <laughs> yeah, it's close <laughs> enough. It's good. Contact dermatitis, um, uh, granulomatous disease, and viral hepatitis. Fantastic. <laughs> So I use the mnemonic acid, so A is anaphylactic, um, type 1, and then C is cytotoxic, which is type 2, and I is immune complex disease, which is type 3, and D is delayed hypersensitivity or cell-mediated, which is type 4. That's really useful. I didn't even know that. (laughs) That would have been helpful. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Charlotte, can you tell me what is neoplasm? Um, So neoplasm is an abnormal growth of tissue that exceeds and is uncoordinated with that of the original tissue. So how do cancer cells invade the extracellular matrix and then metastasize? So there's a number of steps. Begins with loosening of intercellular junctions attachment to the basement membrane and interstitial connective tissue components, degradation of the extracellular matrix via proteases, collagenases and other enzymes, migration of tumour cells via circulatory spread and or embolization, and then they form metastatic deposits at other sites in the body. So why do some tumours metastasize to sites other than their natural blood and lymphatic drainage areas? So some organs and tissues have adhesion molecules, which tumour cells bind to preferentially. Uh, Some organs express chemokine receptors that attract cancer cells. And then downstream tissue may be an environment that's not conducive to cancer cell growth. So skeletal muscle is one of those. And so then the cancer cells will bypass that area and deposit in the next available space. Okay, so for this question, we're going to be talking about the genetics of cancer. What is an oncogene? So an oncogene is a changed form of a gene that is usually involved in normal cell growth. So it results in a transformed phenotype when it's expressed in the cell. The most common are HRAS or KRAS mutations, which make up 30% of all human tumours. And how are oncogenes activated? So that's done by three mechanisms, mutation, gene depletion, or regulatory gene translocation. 
Before it becomes an oncogene through transformation, these genes are known as proto-oncogenes. So Charlotte, can you tell me about what a paraneoplastic syndrome is? Sure. So a paraneoplastic syndrome is a complex of symptoms that cannot be readily explained by the local or distant spread of a tumour or by elaboration of hormones from the tissue in which the tumour arose. And these occur in around 10% of people with malignant disease. Great. And what are the main types of paraneoplastic syndromes? So the main ones are endocrinopathies, nerve muscle syndromes, and then dermatological syndromes. Uh, endocrinopathies include Cushing syndrome from release of ACTH by things like small cell lung cancer, SIADH, which uh, SIADH, where there's release of ADH by small cell lung cancer or intracranial disease, hypercalcemia from parathyroid-like hormones, which is seen in squamous cell lung cancer and some breast cancers, carcinoid syndrome from release of serotonin or bradykinin, which is seen in bronchial cancers, stomach and pancreatic cancer, and polycythemia, which is from EPO release and seen in renal tumours. The nerve and muscle syndromes include myasthenia, which occurs via immune mechanisms and is seen in some bronchogenic carcinomas, and then other neurological syndromes that can be seen with breast cancer. The dermatological ones include acanthosis nigricans, as seen in gastric, lung and uterine cancer, and also dermatomyositis, which is seen in bronchogenic and breast cancer. Great. And can you tell me about the cachexia in relation to how uh, it occurs in cancer? So cancer cachexia is a poorly understood phenomenon, and it's thought to be multifactorial. So you have anorexia elevated basal metabolic rate and other humoral factors such as uh, TNF and cytokines. There is some possible influence of tumour-produced factors, but it's thought to be related to uh, the high metabolic demand of having a neoplastic process and also of your body's response to that process. So that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been lovely to have you. My pleasure. I wonder if you might, we're in what, we're in midway through the year now. Mm -hmm. Um, People are gearing up to sit the MCQ in August and then the Viva a bit later on. Mm. Um, Do you have any words of wisdom or advice for anyone who's who's preparing now? Yeah, loads and loads of practice. (laughs) Um, I think the MCQs just keep going through the question banks and um, for the Viva you can just practice with as many people as you can as often as you can um, and I think it's you can study the content but you have to answer the questions the way they want you to and so practice is the only way to get you there absolutely it sometimes feels like like it's a performance yeah rather than testing of knowledge like you have to know the stuff but you go in there and you perform and you say your lines basically so Absolutely. so yeah I, I would echo that is practice 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 mm. don't be nervous about stuffing things up in front of your colleagues and your friends just you have to just do it don't you yeah all right wonderful thank you so much
so much of the study that you do for this exam is without saying it out loud yeah. and then you come to the vibra and you're like oh my god now I have to pronounce and you only realize that you've been pronouncing things wrong the whole time when yeah. other people are answering the vibra <laughs> questions and you're like oh my god 